Christianity is a fight, it is a struggle, it is meant to be. J.C. Ryle, who is the first bishop of Liverpool about 100 years ago, he once preached a sermon in which he said this, True Christianity is a fight. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster, it satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not good money. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches every Sunday, but you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Spiritual strife, exertion, conflict, self-denial, watching, warring. When was the last time that your experience of the Christian life matched or looked like some of those words? Can you identify with those words? Fighting for something in prayer. When was the last time you fought for something in prayer? Held on to God and didn't let go until you got it. Maybe you're doing that. When was the last time you denied yourself something that you attempted to do, but you knew you could trust God and expect something better? When was the last time fight and struggle was part of your Christian life? In my experience, when we experience and encounter difficulty, we often think there's, or we act like there's a problem, as though something about our Christianity is broken. It's not working like it should be, perhaps, and so we we get concerned. Like when the remote control starts to die, you start to press it more and more. You never change the battery, you just press it harder and harder. And we, when we experience and encounter difficulty in our Christian life, we think there's clearly something wrong. I obviously am not following the right God. I'm not happy. I'm obviously, maybe God isn't looking after me. Maybe God's abandoned. Maybe God's forgotten me. Maybe God's not answering my prayers. Maybe this is all just a lie rather than fighting. At Jesus' baptism, the heavens opened and a voice from the sky declared over him, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And then immediately after that, it says that he was led, or it says then, or therefore, led by the Holy Spirit, he went into the wilderness and experienced 40 days of fasting, at the end of which he was tested and tempted by the devil. Immediately after... God had said, this is my son, I love him. And then came hardship, temptation, difficulty. What if your struggle was actually an indicator and a sign that God does love you? It says in the New Testament that God only disciplines those who are his own children. I don't discipline your kids, I tell mine off. I keep them in line. Because they're mine. What if that's how God treats his own? In the Old Testament, there's the occasion where Jacob, who's Isaac's son, and he's lived a life of swindling and deceiving and running from people. Eventually, it all catches up with him. And he engages in a a wrestle with God, we're told. They fight through the night. 
And it ends with God popping Jacob's hip out of joint and Jacob lives with a limp for the rest of his life. But before he knocks his hip out, Jacob says these words to God. He says, I won't let you go until you bless me. I won't let you go until you bless me. In Psalm 63, the psalmist conveying some of the emotion of the life of faith he says this. In verse 1. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for you. In the New Testament, when Jesus preaches an unpopular sermon, a lot of people leave him. He turns to his followers and he looks Peter in the eye and says, you can go too if you want. Do you want to leave? And Peter says these words to Jesus. He says, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. Jacob says, I won't let you go. Peter says, where else can I go? There's a gritty determination in the life of faith. Writing a letter to a church in Greece, Paul writes to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, I do not run as one running aimlessly and I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I should be disqualified. Paul says, I discipline my body, I keep it under control, or in other translations he says literally, I pummel my body. I'm determined to live a life of devotion sold out to God. Skipping forward a few letters, in the letter to Philippians that he writes, Paul says this, forgetting, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature Think this way. I forget and I strain forward. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. I wonder how much of our, my Christianity is immature by that definition. Another letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians. He finishes the letter with a section reminding them of the fight that Christians are in. In chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not fighting people. But there is a fight. And he says, I want you that after you've done all you can to stand, to still be standing, don't Give up. You know, you have an enemy who hates you. If you're a human being in this room, which last time I checked, we all were, you have an enemy who hates you, the devil who hates the human race, wants to see our destruction. And if you're a Christian, he hates you especially. He hates you especially. You're in a fight. You're in a struggle. You're in a battle. One more verse from the New Testament. Paul writing to the church in Galatia, in Turkey. He says this, 
For freedom, Christ has set us free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We sing the songs, we dance. Well, we, we would do if there was more people and we felt less self-conscious. And there was a bigger band and brighter lights. We'd dance, but we're free. For freedom, Christ has set you free, he says. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He says, Christ has come to set you free. Now, hold on to your freedom. The implication being, there are things and people wanting to enslave you. Stand firm. You might think, I'm English, or you might not be English, but as English people, we might think that we're particularly good at standing. We're very good at standing in queues and lines and waiting our turn. But that's not the kind of standing that Paul has in mind. Stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand and hold on to your freedom. In fact, it's less like standing in line, and it's more like standing in battle. We're going to watch a brief clip from the film 300 that illustrates the kind of standing that Paul has in mind. Earthquake. No, Captain. Battle formations. In 
in the Christian life, resilience is required. <laughs> maybe a film, maybe a dramatic portrayal of an event, and we might think, oh, it's terribly masculine. Truth is, fighting and standing is part of the Christian life. It's not a male or female thing. We're going to be talking for four weeks on this concept that Martin introduced, the heart of celebration. And we're going to be looking at the inner core of our lives as Christians, our worship life. We're going to be talking about what it looks like and how we celebrate when we're together. But more than that, how it affects all of our lives and all of life. Um, We're going to be talking about the theme of expectation, talking about the idea of being prepared. We're going to talk about the type of faith that's required as children of God. But we're also today especially going to be be focusing on this idea of resilience. Resilience. The heart of celebration. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's not just talking about our emotional life. It's talking about our core. It's the seat of our emotions, yes. But your heart is more than just your emotions. It's about your core commitments and principles and values and hopes and trust. The things that matter most to you, who you are at your very core. And in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, it says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above everything else, guard your heart. Protect your heart. Because your life and your experience of life has a direct correlation to your heart. Everything flows out of that. Guard your heart. You see, what your heart trusts, your um, mind justifies. And what your mind justifies, your emotions desire. And what your emotions desire, your will acts on. A lot of self-help is largely around the theme of trying to change your behavior. But the behavior is too far downstream. If you've got a polluted spring, there's no point cleaning up the the lake or looking at the water if you're not sorting out the, the spring that feeds into it. Your heart is at the core of you. What the heart trusts, well, the heart thinks, if I have that, then I'll be happy then what happens is your mind starts to justify everything it can to get that. Well, the heart trusts, and we can trust the heart, right? If the heart believes that this is true, then your mind will find a way of justifying it. And what your mind justifies, well, your emotions, well, they'll say, well, if, if, if my heart, my core thinks it's a good idea, and the mind is justifying, well, who am I? I'll play along as well. And your emotions get into play, and before long, you're acting in a way that you never thought you would, perhaps. In ancient times, poisoning an enemy's water supply has always been a military tactic. It's a way of gaining victory. Since antiquity up until even the First World War, where the Germans did it to the French, poisoning an enemy's water supply. The devil knows if he can poison your heart, if he can get your heart to trust things other than God, if he can get your heart, the engine of your life, to be fueled by the wrong type of trust, he knows he can, he can do what he likes with the rest of your life. It's your heart he's after. And we need to guard our hearts, and we need to do so resiliently. The word resilience is a noun. It means the ability to withstand or recover quickly from difficult situations. So let's talk today about resilience and how it is 
that we can become more resilient as Christians, given that we're in a fight. We'll start with this. The opposite of grace is effort. It's, sorry, the opposite of grace is earning. It's not effort. The opposite of grace is effort. It's earning, not effort. Let me put this up here. Most people think that the opposite to the grace of God, the free gift and love of God, the opposite to that is hard work and effort. Words like discipline and duty are dirty words for many charismatic Christians especially because we think, oh, they're dirty, they're opposite. But that's not true. See, the opposite to free grace is earning. And instead, the opposite then of free grace is earning. And we have this quadrant in place of hard work and laziness put against one another. And you get to decide where you live your life. In which of those four boxes do you think most typically represents your experience of the Christian life? For many people I speak to, their attitudes about faith and God betray that they have an earning reward mentality. That they think, I need to try hard to please God and then he'll love me. But they're also quite lazy. They're in box bottom left. If you live as a lazy person who believes that you need to try hard to earn, earn your favor before God, you'll end up reaping this kind of fruit. You'll feel shameful or you'll feel afraid before God because you'll know that you're not measuring up to a standard and you haven't got the energy or inclination to even try. Or perhaps, perhaps you're in bottom right where you think, I need to earn a reward and I work hard for it. This produces in time a self-righteousness or a hypocrisy because you think, I can't be honest with people. I can't let people see my shortcomings and failings because, well, then I won't be impressive before God. I know that I need to please God by working hard, and that's the only way I'll ever gain favor. You might not say this, but often how we behave betrays that we believe this. Or perhaps you're someone who understands grace. You think, well, I know that I'm acceptable by the work of what Jesus has done and because God loves me. But you're also predispositionally, or personality type, perhaps you're more on the lazy end of the spectrum. Well, if you live in this box for too long, it produces just an unfruitful life. You're loved by God. You're, you know that you're, you're chosen and accepted and he's for you. But your laziness means that you're not fruitful and you're not able to achieve and do the things you want to do. And over time, it can lead to license. That means I can do whatever I like and God will love me anyway. So you end up justifying sin. But where we want to live is here. Believing in free grace, but working hard to trust God and to use our gifts. And that produces a life of fruit and a life where we increase in wisdom over time. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And always acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. Talking about the path of wisdom. The more you trust God over your lifetime, the more it produces a life of wisdom. And wisdom is the the ability to make the right decision in the midst of all of life's circumstances. It's being competent with the realities of life. You don't believe me, or if you don't believe me, let's play a game. Let's play a game of Bible blankety blank. Okay, fill in the blanks. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He said this, I blank blank than all of them, but not I, it was the blank of God within me. Now, if you're not a believer and you don't know your Bibles, I'm not expecting you to play along necessarily. Let me help some of us out. Let me put this word in here. Okay, I something, something, then all of them, but it was not me. It was the grace of God in me. So what did the grace of God in Paul give rise to? I worked harder. He's talking about grace, yes. I worked harder. And that hard work, it was not me. It was grace. 
The something of God teaches me to something, something. Let's put, this, let's put another word in here, help you out. The grace of God teaches me to say, ah, unrighteousness is just different shades, isn't it? There's no real unrighteousness. It teaches me to you know, redefine unrighteousness and sin, to not call sin, sin. Because it's grace and he loves us anyway, right? The grace of God teaches me to say no to unrighteousness. Often people think, shall I react with grace or shall I react with law? No, never react with law to a problem in your life. The answer is that you need to understand grace more. And grace, the love of God, God's favor of you, teaches you to say no, teaches you to stand, teaches you to dig your heels in for God. One more. Something, the good something of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. That's what Paul says. C.S. Lewis, who wrote many of the Narnia stories, he said this, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made. And that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. You are loved and adopted and accepted and chosen by God for a purpose. God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. God sees the world and all that he's made. And in the beginning he says it's very good. Sin enters the world and he sees the world and all that it's made. And he concocts a plan to put it right again. And at the center of that plan is his son and the people of his son, the people of God. God is on a mission, you see, and he invites us and wants us to join him. That's why we're here as a church, because we're on God's mission. It's not like we decided, let's go to Seaford and start a new church, because let's be honest, Seaford needs another new church. Or let's be honest, the people in Seaford, they really want a new church. And so we've seen an opening in the market. Let's just go and provide what they want. It's not what happened. It's not like we started here either and said, oh, well, we thought it'd be a good idea. God, can you join us? Is it, is it a good idea? Would you happy to get on board with our idea? No, God is on a mission. He's on a mission forgiving, reconciling the world to himself, putting the world to rights again. And he wants his people to join him on that mission. And so we said, let's go to Seaford and let's try to start a church. Or let's respond to what God's done and doing in Seaford. And let's reach people in this town with a message of reconciliation, of God's forgiveness, of God's love, and of God wanting to put all things right again. Let's go to Seaford and do that. And to do that, as you know, requires resilience, requires determination, requires courage, it requires staying power. In a church plant situation, you have good weeks and bad weeks, and more bad weeks than good weeks. You have encouragements and discouragements, and more discouragements than encouragements, if we're honest. But God is on a mission, and he's inviting us to join him, and he's saying, be resilient, stand your ground, hold the line, To fulfill our mission, to play our part in his mission, requires courage, determination, and resilience. You know, in other parts of the world, as we know, Christians are being blown up on Easter Sunday for being Christians. 
In other parts of the world, Christians are having their heads chopped off. They're being beheaded for being Christians, some of them having it done on global television. In the Western world, we more often keep our heads down than have, them head, than have our heads chopped off. We stay out of sight, myself included. I keep myself to myself. I keep my faith to myself. I keep my money to myself. I keep my ambitions to my ambitions for my purpose. I read this week about a 15-year-old girl who lived a couple of hundred years ago uh, in France. A 15-year-old girl called Mary, sorry, Marie Durand. And age 15, she was arrested in France for being a, a Christian, a Protestant Christian. And she was imprisoned in a tower, along with other women, guilty of the same crime. And she was told, you can leave this tower at any point you like. You just need to renounce your evangelical Christianity, your Christianity, your faith. You need to renounce it. And you can leave this tower at any time. Age 15, with her life ahead of her. She left that tower 38 years later. Age, was that 53? 63. 53, you pulled a face. I was pretty confident until you pulled a face. 53. <laughs> she left that tower at age 53 and died not long after of ill health sustained from being in this tower. And she died not because she renounced, but because the laws changed and the government and the king intervened. She was resilient in the face of desperation and hopelessness. She fought. She didn't give in. To suicide, as many others did and would have done. She didn't give in to hopelessness and desperation. She was resilient. She held on. You know, in the past, missionaries, Christians, used to leave this country, pack their belongings in a coffin, and say, I'm off to tell people in other countries about Jesus, and you'll never see me again. And that was it. They were gone. These days, we go on short-term missions trips with an overnight bag and and a mobile phone charger in case we miss home. C.T. Studd who was an England cricketer in 1882. He played in the first ever Ashes match. And his name's mentioned in the poem that's written on the urn. He gave up all of his worldly acclaim and his titles in order to be a missionary and to go and tell people in China and later Congo in Africa about Christ. And he said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice I make can ever be too great to make for him. Interestingly, do you hear that Martin's interpretation of Chris's uh, prayer language this morning was along those lines? If you did all this for me, God, how can I not give all this or do all this for you? But C.T. Studd, he was quite a resilient um, chap. And he was the kind of person that put people's noses out of joints and backs up because he was quite offensive. He was so determined to live all out for God. He wrote a, a booklet called Chocolate Soldiers in which he described the Christianity of his day. He said this, chocolate Christians dissolve in water and melt at the smell of fire. Sweeties they are, bonbons, lollipops, living their lives in a glass dish or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, a little frilled white paper to preserve his dear delicate constitution. He wrote that about the Christianity in his day. Are we any better? I'm quite often offended by myself and my lack of zeal for God. How quickly I will give up something that God has spoken to me about or 
offered me or how quickly I would lay down my faith and keep my head down. I'm offended by myself. A few weeks ago, I was with my impact students up in East Grinstead and we had an evangelist with us for the day. And um, he got us and the students to go out onto the streets in East Grinstead and to approach strangers and try to spark up a gospel conversation and offer to pray for them. I kept my head down. I didn't join in like everyone else. I was too afraid. I'm offended at myself sometimes. I feel like a failure to stand in front of a church and say, let's live for God. And I know how cowardly my heart is a lot of the time. We had Mzizi live with us last year from Zimbabwe. And often when we ate dinner, we would have chicken on the bone because he likes chicken on the bone. He likes his chicken. And um, the difference between how he ate his chicken and how we as a nice, polite English family ate our chicken was obvious. So I would eat my chicken and get the meat off my chicken bone and leave it on the plate. And I was thinking I was done till I looked at his plate and all that was left was tiny scraps of bones as he licked them dry of all of the gristle and bone and fat and everything else that had gone with it. You look at my plate and there was bone but there was like bits all around it and it was like a, a politely English bone eaten at a barbecue. You just think, I'll only eat a little bit, just the meat, the good bits. His food, however, everything had been eaten apart from the, you know, literally licking the bones clean. I wonder sometimes... If that difference is, the, is a metaphor and the difference between my spiritual life, my Christian life and many others, I'll bite a bit of God. I'll get to know God a little bit. But when it requires resilience and determination, I'll just leave the scraps left. I won't plumb the depths of God. I'll give up. The church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation has a, a personal prophetic word from the Lord Jesus himself. What a great opportunity. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to several churches to encourage them and strengthen them. Wow, I love a personal prophetic word from the risen and exalted Jesus himself. He says to the church, he says, I've got this against you. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I'm going to spew you out my mouth. Oh, I'd rather have another prophetic word if I can about my destiny. My future, about how much you love me. This is the last five minutes. Let me talk about resilience and what it looks like. What does resilience look like for us? Well, probably lots of things. But among them, I think it looks like determination and dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction, by the way, is different from discontentment. Paul says in the book of Philippians, I've learned the secret of being content, whatever the circumstances. I've learned how to be peaceful and happy in God, whether I'm rich or in prison and got nothing. But contentment is different from satisfaction. Paul says, in many ways, I'm never satisfied. I press on. I'm straining forward. I'm dissatisfied. I think we ought to be with going through the motions on Sundays. I'm dissatisfied with that attitude in my heart. Say, that's another Sunday. Let's go. Let's do it. I'm determined to play my part. Determination looks like a willingness to use my gifts. You know, last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and I thought we had a a great time together as a church. It was wonderful to be together. Until I went home and heard that in Eastbourne, (laughs) 
They had eight baptisms at Hamden Park and four in Centro. And my joy diminished somewhat. I thought, but I thought we had a great time. And we did, don't get me wrong. But I wasn't satisfied. I went for a walk this week and was just talking to the Lord about my dissatisfaction. Saying, God, it's not fair. They had 12 baptisms in Eastbourne and we've had none for nine months, nearly a year. I want more baptisms. We want more people to meet Jesus. That's what that basically means. We want more people to meet Jesus in Seaford. I'm not satisfied, God. What are we not doing? What do we need to do, God? Can't believe they had 12 in Eastbourne. Quick as a flash, I felt dropped into my heart from God. He said, there was much more, many more than 12 baptisms going on last Sunday. There were thousands going on around the world. If you want to be dissatisfied, be dissatisfied at that. I felt God say, I want you to be dissatisfied because dissatisfaction drives you deeper into me. Don't be dissatisfied that you haven't had 12 baptisms. Be dissatisfied that you haven't had thousands. There are 25,000 people in this town and half of them don't care about God, don't know that we exist. There's a dissatisfaction. There's a healthy dissatisfaction from that. I think resilience looks like a dissatisfaction with not hearing from God personally for myself. And it looks like a determination to come with an open Bible and a ready heart. I will literally chew as much meat off every bone I can, God. I'm determined to hear from you. A dissatisfaction, perhaps, that others might be running faster in their Christian life, growing more. God, give me a determination instead to throw off everything that hinders me, every sin that entangles me, and press on. There's so much more in God for us, for you. I'm dissatisfied, perhaps, with the current rate of trust of God that I might have, or my financial giving. I want to trust you, God, more with my money. I want to trust you, God. I want to, I'm dissatisfied with my level of intimacy with you, God. I want to know you more. I'm determined to, to wake every day and get to know you, God. I'm dissatisfied, perhaps, with an aimlessness. Or maybe you're dissatisfied with an aimlessness. Instead, turn that into a determination to live for God. Now, many of you are really quite inspirational when it comes to dissatisfaction and determination. People who say, I'm dissatisfied with how I'm feeling. I'm determined to be with the people of God. I'm determined to play my part. I know people who endure a lot of difficulty in their private, personal lives or home life or in marriage situations, who endure difficulty and press on resiliently. That is inspirational, remarkable. Imagine, though, if that attitude was, uh, was in all of us. Imagine a, a Jacob-like spirit in this church that said, I won't let you go, God, until you bless me. If all of us were living with that hunger, Imagine if Sunday mornings were full of fighters who were willing to stand and push on and pursue God together, calling out to God for things. One of the most helpful pieces of advice someone ever gave me on prayer, he said, God is more interested in your attention than he is your time. Imagine a room full of people who want to give God our attention. Or someone else said to me, wait on God until he arrives. Meaning, don't say, oh God, I'm here for you. Okay, all right, what should we do? <laughs> Where's the dis- determination? We want to be a church of Christians or a church of people who are living with a dissatisfaction for what God has given us right now and pushing on for more, more stories, more of this, more of that. That's what resilience is. Now, this one might sound quite heavy and, and drastic, 
But the good news is that God knows what we're like. The good news is that he knows I'm a failure. He knows I'm a coward and he still loves me anyway. In the story of uh, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, many of you will know the moment. Jesus has got the cross on his mind. He knows he's about to be tried and executed as a criminal. And he says to his friends, he says, stay up and pray with me. Watch with me. And he goes over somewhere and prays to his father, wrestles in prayer, comes back and finds his friends asleep. Kind of rebukes them, goes back and prays and says, please stay awake. Comes back and they're asleep. You know what I would have done if I was Jesus? You fell asleep? I'm about to die for the sins of the world and you couldn't stay awake? That's what I would have said. But you know what Jesus says? He assumes the best. And he says to them, the spirit is willing. I know. I know you're willing, but the flesh is weak. Really, Jesus? He's that gracious? He's that kind? He's that good? Rather than rebuking them for falling asleep? He says, no, I know what it's like. He thinks the best of them. We end with a Bible verse here. In Hebrews 4.16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The heart of celebration is a resilient heart that guards itself, that it pushes on and is determined and dissatisfied. And we can do that regardless of who we are and how we feel about our current level of spiritual affection or love of God because he knows what we're like and he loves us. And he says you can approach the throne of God with confidence and grace. We're going to end by reading aloud together the lyrics from an old hymn that I find particularly helpful on this to remind us that he knows us who we, he knows us as we are, loves us as we are. And as, after we've read those lyrics, we're going to respond in a song together. But my exhortation to you this morning is that we press on, that we guard our hearts in, the, in all of life and also on Sundays when we're together, that there's a resilience involved. This is a hymn written a while ago called Just As I Am. We're going to read three of the verses from it. Why don't you stand with me and we'll read it aloud together. As John, I'll say the band comes out, but as John comes out. Let's read this together. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, am waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though thrown about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a resilient people who press on to take hold of that for which you have taken hold of us. Amen.